0: Well, good afternoon. What a uh, pleasure it is to be here in San Diego in this wonderful symposium, very nicely organized, very fascinating. I want to tell you a little story, which is a a kind of mystery, I've been thinking of it as a mystery, in three parts. Um, Starting with Darwin, starting in England, moving to Siberia, which we've already heard a bit about, and then ending up in the present. Um, and I, we're kind of playing the role of Sherlock Holmes here, but another way of thinking about this is uh, more like a medical doctor who sees a suite of symptoms and tries to figure out what is the underlying cause that pulls all of this stuff together. And the, the mystery, you've already heard something about it, it's a mystery that goes back to Darwin, and in particular this fantastic, gigantic, encyclopedic, uh, d- variation of uh, animals and plants under domestication, giant two-volume two, two set, two big Bibles, and Darwin was an amazing collector of kind of everything th- that was known at his time about domesticated plants and animals. And he noticed, particularly with mammals, but also with some of the other domesticated uh, birds, for example, and even fish we know today, that there's a a common suite of changes that keep popping up in all of these these independently domesticated species. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking about rats or guinea pigs or horses or goats or sheep or pigs or cats or dogs, we keep seeing the same funny things popping up. So that, and just to go through them very quickly, the most striking one, and this is something that's so obvious when you look at these animals, but if you think about it, you realize this is really weird. All of these different domesticated species show bizarre coloration. So this is one of the most striking forms, this black and white coloration. Quite rare in nature. Typically when you see it, it's in things like skunks that uh, it's a warning coloration. But in domesticated species, we find breeds that show this funny coloration all over the place. Another one that's very unusual is droopy ears, floppy ears like that. Now, not all breeds show this, of course, but, but many dogs, and I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the, uh, dog breeds, and, and rabbits are another strong case. And, of course, the wild-type ancestors from which these species were domesticated always have erect ears. And, in fact, Darwin noted that the only species that have floppy ears in nature are elephants. So, again, weird thing. Why does it keep popping up in all these domesticated species? Another one, which again we've heard something about, is the the shortening of the snout. And this actually goes along with smaller teeth as well. Um, Again, this is something that's typical of domesticated species. It's not always as obvious as in cases like these uh, flat-faced cats and dogs. But it is, from a statistical point of view, another thing that domesticated species have in common when compared to their wild-type cousins. I love this... uh, this is a wild cat from Scotland and he he looks very angry about what happened to this little cat. <laughs> so as we've already heard, another thing that happens is changes in brain size. So, why is it that domesticated species tend to have quite a bit, uh, brains that are quite a bit smaller than their wild type cousins? Now, this is variable. So, the, the number that I think is most striking is this 35% for, for domesticated pigs relative to wild boars. But in dogs or cats, it's something like 25 to 30%. And there's only a few species where we don't see it. And uh, an example are mice, domesticated mice, but also the domesticated foxes that we've already heard something about show a very small, uh, it's questionable whether it's a significant difference in brain size. But again, a general thing in all of these independently domesticated species. And of course, last but not least, the thing that really all domesticated species have in common is their tameness. They tend to be... Unafraid of humans, often even quite affectionate of humans. I particularly love this picture in the Alps. Imagine going up to a wild bison on a mountaintop and just going and petting it. You would, never, you would never think of this, but we can do this with domesticated animals. So in all these cases, we've seen a suite of changes, and Darwin was aware of all of them. We now know of some other stuff that Darwin didn't know, but that, the, these uh, changes that I told you about form the core of something that we've dubbed the domestication syndrome. Um, So this is the sort of medical term. The term is not meant to suggest that this is a disease or something that's a terrible thing that's happened to domesticated species, only that all of these traits seem to come together. They seem to work as a package for reasons that we don't fully fully understand. And this is a term that my co-authors on the paper that's cited right here, Richard Wrangham, who's here in the audience, and Adam Wilkins, who wasn't able to attend. We just published this paper, and that's where we introduced this term. um, Trying to make sense of this suite of changes, this domestication syndrome. So why? Why should this happen? That's the mystery, and it's an, a very old one. If you figure that, that Mendel's theory of genetics only happened uh, right around the same time as Darwin's domestication of species, we might even say it's the oldest problem in genetics. So why, what, what would cause this strange, seri- this strange uh, set of things to keep happening over and over again? So there are some hypotheses that have been out there for a while. For example, the piebald coloration. Well, we can explain that that you, if you're a farmer and you've lost your sheep or your goat or your horse, it might be easier to find them if they're black and white. So maybe people specifically selected for that. Okay, that's plausible for pigmentation. It doesn't help us explain all the other uh, sweets. For brains, I think it's a little bit easier. As we've already heard, it might be better to basically have your domesticated animals not be so clever, not be good at escaping, not making their own decisions about when to breed or what to eat, etc. So that, again, I think is a reasonably plausible explanation, but only for brain size, not for these other uh, features. Um, the only thing that I think is pretty obviously... Uh, Makes sense from a from a functional point of view is that animals would uh, that humans, given a choice between an animal like this friendly Labrador of the sort that we just we look at it and we think he's a nice dog versus uh, another dog like this, um, it's pretty clear what early humans, whether consciously or unconsciously, would probably prefer this to that. So I think the, the selection for tameness is something that we can take for granted, and that's what Darwin observed was, was almost certainly the unifying selective force, that, whether conscious or unconscious, that applied to all of these different domesticated species. Okay? So I think we don't have—none of these gives a full explanation for the whole suite of changes. So that's the mystery. And again, starting in England in, in Charles Darwin's time. And now let's fast forward to the late 1950s when Dmitry Belayev, whose story we've already heard a bit about, a geneticist who, who accepted Mendelian principles in the time of Lysenko, who didn't accept uh, Mendelian principles, was in quite a bit of danger. So I think Belayev actually got out pretty, he was lucky to be sent to Siberia, where he was able to create this new institute in, at, in Novosibirsk. Um, I actually went there, this is me up there, and it's not as bad as it sounds. Novosibirsk is actually really nice in the summer, it's very warm, there's a beautiful lake there, so I agree, it's it's, being sent to Siberia doesn't seem like it was such a terrible thing, and of course what it enabled Belayev to do was an an audacious experiment, think about how crazy this might have seemed, I'm going to create a new domesticated species from scratch, I'm with with specific selection, I'm going to make a new domesticated species, So I'm sure people at the time must have shaken their heads and said, well, this is impossible. There's no way. It takes thousands of years to accomplish this kind of thing. But as you've already heard, it didn't take very long. After about eight generations, there was already clear progress in um, creating tamer, less aggressive uh uh, foxes. And after 20 generations, they had these beautiful, the, the, what, what uh, Professor Kukekova showed us, these beautifully friendly, beautifully tamed foxes that appeared. And the critical thing about this experiment, of course, is they, they were very careful to only select for tameness. They, this, unlike the, what, the, whatever happened in the mists of time when dogs were domesticated or when horses were domesticated or, or pigs, this is a case where we know what the scientists were doing. They were specifically and solely selecting for tameness. Okay, and there's there's Belayev with his foxes. And of course, as we've already heard, by selecting for tameness, just by choosing the ones who were least nasty, they got a, a, a suite of other changes, like white spotting, like floppy ears, like curly tails, very parallel to those that we see in all of these other domesticated species. So this is one of the reasons that I think the Belayev experiment, the, the Novosibirsk experiment, is so important because it shows us that specific selection on one thing can indeed lead to these other things as an unselected byproduct. And that, I think, um, really illustrates the power of modern science, at least if you have 50 years to do it, to get at questions that would otherwise be unanswerable. And one of the the lesser-known facts about the Novosibiris project is that they've also been uh, domesticating minks, and they've very successfully domesticated rats, and seen the same suite of changes. So in both of these cases, you start to see changes in pigmentation and and, uh, morphology, along with the tameness that's being directly selected for Okay, So what we can conclude from the Belayev experiment is that selection for tameness alone is enough to lead to most of the other traits that we see in this domestication syndrome. And the question then is why? What's, what's behind this um, thing? So the answer, now we get to part three of my talk. The idea that my colleagues and I have proposed is that the common denominator for all of these different traits that I've been talking about, pigmentation, changes in teeth, changes in snout, changes in ears, changes in tameness, all come from a common embryological origin in a set of tissues called the neural crest. And since the neural crest aren't, these aren't necessarily the best known uh, bits of tissue for people who aren't biologists. What the neural crests are, are uh, it's a transitory set of cells. that happens very early in our development. So when we're really, before we even have a brain, when we're little embryos, the, ba- the, the, the neural tube forms by a coming together of the dorsal part of the embryo, and then it invaginates to form a tube. So that that happens up here, and then right at the tip of that, these, this at the tip of this tube, we have a crest, a temporary crest, and those cells basically break away and they go on to infiltrate the rest of the body. So these become migratory and spread throughout the body. They go all over the place. Um, just to give you some illustrations, this is a diagram to give you some sense of the different routes that they can take to go down um, to form muscles to form cartilage to form pigmentation cells, etc cetera, etc cetera. and this is a stream of neural crest cells of three particular types of neural crest cells in an actual embryo and you can see them streaming away from this dorsal portion of the embryo to go out into the and, and find their way into the, to the rest of the body of the developing animal So all of us have lots of tissues that were originated from this particular population of embryonic precursors. So what's this have to do with our problem, with our mystery? Well, all of these traits that I've told you about have their origin in neural crest tissue. So for example, the cells that form the teeth are called odontoblasts. They come from the neural crest. The cells that form all of the bones and cartilage of the snout come from the neural crest. All of the um, black and white colorations so the melanocytes come from the neural crest. And crucially, the adrenal glands and the sympathetic nervous system, which are responsible for the fearful and sometimes aggressive responses that that an organism needs to mount, they also have their origins in the neural crest. So the adrenal glands, sympathetic ganglia, pigmentation cells, tooth cells, the uh, 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 bone and muscles, uh, bone and cartilage of the snout, and the ear cartilages all come from the same basic uh, precursor population. So the hypothesis that my colleagues and I have introduced is, that, is the specific idea that selecting for tameness changes the neural crest, and all of these other changes that we've seen, that we've been talking about, black and white coloration, etc., are simply unselected byproducts of the selection on this fearful or uh, tame response. Okay, So how would this work? Well, as you've already heard, there's a period of development in which young, dog, young animals, such as this would be true for any species, when exposed to human input, can react fearfully and learn, oh, humans are scary, or they can react unfearfully, and then if they do that and the humans are nice to them, they learn that humans aren't dangerous. And we know that that period, that socialization window, is opened wider in dogs than in wolves, and how does that work? Well, it looks like that's a reduction of the adrenal glands and the sympathetic nervous system. So both of these components of the nervous system are delayed in their maturation. So if they, if they delay later, that gives more time for dogs or, or cats or pigs or sheep to be socialized to humans. And then they're what we call tame. Now, the lesser known fact about dogs is if you don't socialize them. If you don't expose them to human contact within their first year of life, they will be wild for the rest of their lives. So you can't take a dog that's one year old and has never seen humans and ever turn it into a tame dog. So this window of socialization is a real thing, but again it's a transitory thing. So what we're talking about is a change in the developmental timing of the fear response rather than some sort of blanket change that that say domesticated animals aren't or can't be afraid. Okay? And the idea of this is, of course, that because the neural crest forms this fear response, forms this uh, physio- the, the physiological capability to feel fear, once you reduce that, you're going to reduce the other things that neural crests produce as well. Teeth, bones, ears, pigmentation. Completely unselected. Or they may be selected later on. They may be selected for, for other reasons later on. But in the early stages, they wouldn't need to be. Okay, so this is a diagrammatic representation of this. Um, there is a term in the medical literature called neurochristopathy. That, that refers to a specific damage or, or um, deleterious mutation in the neural crest. So we've used that term. I, it, again, it sounds a bit too much like disease for my taste, but we could think of this as being a kind of mild christopathy, a mild uh, delaying or disruption of the neural crest migratory pattern. Um, and what that the, the reason that's happening is specifically for these adrenal and sympathetic responses, for, for the ability to mount a fight and flight response. By delaying the neural crest, you delay that, opening this socialization window. That's what humans selected for. That's what we were specifically going after. That hence the the, the solid line. All of the rest of this stuff, which also comes from Neural Crest, is a correlated byproduct of that. It's, it's not selected for, but it just happens because we've delayed this. And the one part that we're not entirely sure about is the forebrain size. So what, what, I, what this diagram tries to do is show specifically what the neural crest leads to, and it's all of the domestication syndrome except for brain size. And the, the key idea is that only this was specifically selected by humans, and these aspects are unselected byproducts. So that's where we stand. Um, I don't think the mystery is solved entirely. As I said, the brain size reduction are the most difficult to account for. So no part of the brain is formed from neural crest. There are interactions between uh, neural crest cells and the forebrain that, that are suggestive of the idea that the neural crest might have a, a strong influence on the brain. But there's th- they aren't specific precursors of the brain. And, of course, the real question, the question that we all want to know the answer to, are what exactly are the specific genes that are involved in this? So it's one thing to say these are genes that are involved in neural crest development. It's another thing to start getting the, the, the specific genes and listing them. Now, the problem, or it's a good thing or a bad thing, There are hundreds of genes that are involved in neural crest delay. We certainly don't think that it's one single gene. All the evidence points against the idea that there's a single gene that influences, that will control the neural crest or control domestication. So what it looks like is that in the normal population of the ancestral wolves, the ancestral rabbits, the ancestral pigs or whatever, there was a lot of free variation, minor alleles of small effect, and these could react very quickly to selection on on tameness. what we expect now is a suite of genes, all of which are involved in neural crest, but not one specific gene or even two or three specific genes that are going to be shared by all these domesticated species. So what we have here is a unified developmental mechanism, but not a single or, or a small number of genes per se. So we expect, in the end, if this, is, if this hypothesis is correct, we expect there to be many, um, not one or two genes to be involved. So, I hope to show up here five years from now and we can give a a much more detailed analysis of this. But for now, I'll thank you for your attention. I want to specifically thank my co authors, Adam Wilkins and Richard Wrangham, and my ERC grant, Samaka, for supporting this research. Thank you very much.